Now, I, for, for the married folk in the room, those who have been with someone for a long time, I want to call your memory back to the beginnings of your relationship when you were young and naive and believed that disagreements and arguments were just for lesser couples, but not for you guys. Do you remember that time when everything was just so good that you just couldn't imagine ever disagreeing about something? I remember in T&I's relationship, we, we have one of our first robust dialogues that really stands out in, my, in, in our minds. It was the first time that she was really getting to meet my mom. And my wife is amazing. She's a helper. Like, so if someone's working on something, her hands are going to be immediately in there helping. So my mom is getting dinner ready at our house in Georgia, and Tia doesn't even know where anything is yet, but she's like looking in the cabinets, finding stuff, helping to get the table set. And as she's out there setting the table, she, she's just, you know, put, putting the silverware down, and, and she does something kind of like that. And now, just fair, fair warning without shoes on and bringing it was normal to find me out in the woods at five years old without a shirt without shoes on and a bb gun on my shoulder like I mean like just running around like that's how we lived but but at the same time my mom also instilled in us very clear directions of how to set the table and then when you put the knife down on the table the proper direction for it to face is towards the plate now my wife she was just helping and setting the table, and all of a sudden, I start going behind her. See, the people who get it, get it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, the, the plate is that far, and this is there, and there, and, and these are, are the same knife put inward. And, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm just, I'm helping too. She's like, but you're just redoing all the things that I've already done. And it created the, the, that one of those first conversations that, that, that's a little bit heated. And it's interesting because just within, within this room even, there's people who would be arguing on my behalf, and there's people who would be arguing on her behalf. And it's easy to see how disagreements happen amongst people and how disagreements can lead towards this emotion called anger. Now, I know that anger is not something that most of you have felt in your life because you're such good Christians, but some of us in the room have experienced anger in a way that I'd say Scripture directs us to handle it differently. And it's interesting that as we think about the person of Christ, we think about His love and His teaching and His wisdom and His power, and we miss the, the fact that there's a couple times in the Gospels, which are the stories of Jesus' life, where he expressed anger. Anger of itself is not actually wrong. Anger of itself is not sin. But when we allow anger to push us to a point where we are not speaking what is right, speaking what is, should be said in love, or it directs other behaviors that we know are destructive, anger can quickly move us to a place where it is sin. Because it's really hard to calm the ego down once anger is involved in a situation, isn't it? Let me, let me, let me press a little bit, and now I'll be delicate on this. But we often say, well, I have anger, but it's been just anger, Paul. 
It's holy, righteous anger. And so people need to know that they're wrong and I'm the one to explain it to them. Because if I'm over here and I'm a Republican, then my outrage that I feel at the Democrats is justified. And so I'm righteous in my anger towards them. And the people that are over here that are Democrats will say, well, I have righteous anger because these issues with these Republicans that are just glaringly obvious to anyone who will look at them. And so I'm righteous in my anger. And some of you guys know exactly which side you fall on on that. Some people are like, I'm so angry that people are putting me and others at risk by not getting vaccinated and they're putting my dog at risk by not getting vaccinated and so I have a righteous anger towards them. And then the people over here are like, I have a righteous anger towards them because they're trying to force a vaccination on me that I don't want and I should be able to make my decision and so I can yell and scream as much as I want because my righteous anger needs to be on display. And we can clearly see in our society that there are lots of lines of division where people think that they are glaringly right that there's no conversation to be had, and so it's just, I'm right, they're wrong. And the place that I want to start this message at, and maybe this is all that you'll get from it today because you're ready to turn it off because I said the Democrats or Republicans could be the right one, and that's enough to offend you. First of all, when anger gets involved, our ego just hits mute on all other voices, and it usually hits mute on the Spirit of God as well. And when you reach a point in your conversation where you refuse to listen, to be teachable, to to allow God to speak to you on a subject, to allow Scripture to change your mind of how you've been reacting. If you won't allow Scripture to change your behaviors, then you've allowed pride to get into an unhealthy position in your life. And so today's message, it needs to be received at a starting point of humility that says, whatever Scripture teaches, I want to respond to. Whenever the Spirit of God pushes on me, I want to take the step that He's pushing on me about. Because anger and the things that we get angry about, we often lose any teachability and any ability to grow because we let anger just be in control. And that's really where anger becomes a sin is where we allow it to control and direct our behaviors. Anger in itself is not just a sin. And we're going to see that there's... A couple, there's a couple spots, but there's one very obvious spot in Scripture where Jesus allowed His anger to be on display. And it was a just and righteous anger. And I want to give you a little context on the passage before we get to the passage, because this will help you understand a lot of the emotions that would have been felt in the crowd. So, uh, du- during the time of Passover in Jerusalem, the normal population of Jerusalem was about 40,000 people during the time that Jesus lived and when he was betrayed and crucified. About 40,000 people. During the time of Passover, this will stir up some of your emotions when you think about season, and you can understand that there will be some angry things that that rise up. During Passover, there was about 250,000 people that would be in the city built for 40,000. 250,000. You think our season is bad. You think our traffic is bad. You think the lines at the grocery store are bad during October and December It's nothing like this. And so that's enough, I think, to kind of gear up, okay, the difficulty of just supply and demand in a city that is normally 40,000 people, and now it's 250,000 people in this day and age. And the the passage we're going to read also describes this time in the temple, and I want to give you some background on that. The temple was built of courts that would go from the outer courts that were considered less holy all the way to the inner where the most holy of holies. 
And one of the exterior courts was called the court of the Gentiles because that's the court where the people who weren't Hebrew were allowed to go, but where they had to stop. And if someone, if the, someone was a Hebrew who was unclean, they could be in that court, but they had to stop at that one. And it was very obvious they had to stop because the next gate to the next interior court was written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew that said, under pain of death, the unclean and Gentiles may not enter. Like, welcome to church. This is where you stop. And so the Gentiles, they couldn't go any further than that court. They could make their donations there. Um, Those donations would be received, but that is where their participation ended. And the issue that we come into here, here at Passover, when we have about six times as many people in the temple as what they're used to having, people from all the surrounding area making their way, making a pilgrimage there. And, and as you entered into worship, there was what was known as the temple tax. And, and they were asked to give one half of, of uh, not a, I, I, um, a shekel, I almost said shilling, that is the wrong culture, a shekel. Half of a shekel, which was about a, a day and a half's wages. But there was different currencies that were used because they were under Roman occupation. And so they would have to exchange because they were required to give the right amount of money for it. And it had to be in the right currency as well. So what had happened, what happened was the money changers and people who were selling sacrifices began to set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. And so as you came into worship, before you could really enter into the temple, you were required to pay this tax. And so if you didn't have the right currency, then then you would have to work with the money changers. And the money changers would add a little extra to your bill because they charged a fee. And you can imagine if 250,000 people come in here and they need to change their money, those people are making quite a bit. In the same way, the people who were selling doves and selling sacrifices there that people would need to make... There, there were people who made long pilgrimages and they couldn't bring doves for sacrifice and so they would buy them there. And much like going to a concert or to a theme park, when you arrived in there, they were inflating the price. What would normally cost about four pence would be 75 pence within the temple. And so they were jacking up the prices. And so Jesus walks into the situation in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12 through 14. And we'll project this on the screen. Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Now look, there are things I know that make you and I mad. Like there are things that can get anger to rise up in us that that really probably shouldn't. And some of them are like the small things. Like when you're getting ready in the morning, I don't know if this has made you angry. It's made me angry before. You put on your socks and you walk through the kitchen and there's a puddle of water. Now your, your socks are wet. And like that starts your day and you're like, this has just started off in the wrong way. And you start driving, you come to a four way stop and someone takes your turn at the four way stop. And they know it was your turn. It was obvious, but they took it. And then you get stopped at a red light and another red light and another red light and you're driving down Del Prado and you hit four red lights in a row and this is wrong. Someone did not do their job properly in the city and they deserve an angry email from me because they are ruining my day. And so you get to Publix and you're going through the grocery aisle and someone has their cart blocking the aisle and they make eye contact with you but they do not move their cart. 
That, I'm stirring up some emotion in some people now. And then you get your pub sub, and on your first bite, everything falls out the back of the sub. And it hits the floor. And when it hits the floor, you start cleaning it up, and someone tells you to clean it up, and you're like, I'm already cleaning it up. They tell you to do, do something you've already been doing. These are things that can stir up anger in us. When someone criticizes us, when a family member tells us to do something and we already know or we don't need their opinion on the matter, it creates anger in us. And we, we feel justified, okay, I've reached the limit. Like it started with the puddle and the sock and now it came from mom saying something that I didn't need her to say and now anger is just going to be let loose. There are lots of times that we experience and allow anger to control us and I really don't think you need me to pinpoint those too much because we know like we know when anger is expressed in the wrong way we don't always own it and I want to stop there and tell you when you express anger and you are angry about something or you take anger out on someone that you shouldn't have you need to own that you need to ask for forgiveness you need to make restitution when necessary you need to own those moments. It is good for you to own it. And in fact, but you're like, Paul, it's difficult to own that moment. I don't like to do that. That's what helps you not get angry in the future. <laughs> when you actually deal with it properly and you, you get that moment where it dwells up, you're like, if I let this fly again, then I'm going to have to eat crow again. And I didn't really enjoy that. It actually helps you in the future when you handle it. And it preserves the relationship with those around that you've offended. And it also honors God when you do the right thing and ask for forgiveness. There's lots of sides to why you need to handle it properly. But I, I want to look at some things about how we're actually supposed to handle anger and when anger is supposed to be displayed. That's really what a lot of this is. Where's the proper channel for anger? But I do want to make sure that as we speak about anger, we quickly look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 27, that gives your anger some guidelines and deadlines. It says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Because that's where the sin is. Sin is when you let anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. That's, it gives a foothold to destruction in your life. And in fact, I want to make sure I pause. That when it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, this is not telling you to move to Alaska where one day will last three months so you get to harbor your anger for a longer time. This is not about how to chase the sun around the earth and live in one eternal day so that you can hold on to your anger. This is saying that when something happens and you have anger, that you're supposed to deal with it before the end of that day. And so if you have allowed yourself to slip into a season of anger, and you, might, and you might say, well, Paul, they made me angry and what they did was terrible. And you might be accurate in that. And you are not responsible for the harm that someone else inflicted on you. But you are responsible for healing in your own life. And you're not going to hurt them any by continuing to feel the pain about what they brought into your life. It is up to you to, to deal with forgiveness and anger on the daily basis. And it's an act of love from God that he gave you that deadline. Because if you've been living in an angry season and it's been keeping you up at night, you know that you've lost sleep over that. Why not just deal with it and experience healing and wholeness? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Take the steps that you need to take to deal with anger. Because you deserve to experience the freedom that comes after dealing with anger. And so I want to be clear on that. But I want to, I want to tell you, as we see this, this passage, 
where Jesus gets angry, I want to remind you about some other characteristics about Jesus, and this also gives us some clarity about when anger should be expressed. Because when Jesus was early in his ministry, his brothers kind of mocked him and criticized him. Have you ever been mocked and criticized by your family and responded with anger? The answer probably is yes. And I don't need you guys to answer this because this would be kind of condemning to you if you had to respond truthfully to all the things that I'm about to list out. Um, When your mama tells you to do something that you don't want to do, have you ever responded with anger? Probably. When Jesus was at a wedding, his mom was like, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he's like, that is not my problem. But he didn't respond with anger to her. When he taught and people did not believe him, actually there was times where he taught and people said, Jesus, you are demon-possessed. And that's how they spoke to him. And he didn't respond with anger to that. When government leaders made decisions that he did not agree with and had actual impact on him and his life, he didn't respond with anger. When his friends did not understand him and he had told them very plainly what they needed to do, he did not respond with anger. When people abandoned him and called his teachings difficult and criticized him, he did not respond with anger. When people attacked Jesus' reputation to his face and behind his back, he did not respond with anger. When, when Pontius Pilate and Herod made decisions about his life that, that pushed him towards the cross, he did not respond with anger. When Judas, who was supposed to be his friend, betrayed him, he did not respond with anger. When Peter, did you know that Peter actually rebuked, he attempted to rebuke Jesus? Like he was like, no, you're wrong about what you just said, about you, that you're going to die in Jerusalem? That will never happen. Jesus didn't respond with anger. When, when Peter betrayed Jesus and said, I don't even know him. When a close friend does that to you, it's easy to respond with anger, but Jesus did not respond to anger. When they drove the nails through his hands and through his feet, Jesus did not respond with anger. And I want to make sure you understand the person of Christ. He could have called down a legion, an army of angelic hosts down to fight for him and get revenge. He could have responded with anger if he wanted to. He did not respond to anger. When he was beaten with whips, he did not respond with anger. But when he walked into the temple and the, quote, mature in faith had allowed it to turn into a marketplace that created barriers that kept people from God, that is when he responded with anger. It's telling to look at the life of Christ and the things that he just let slide past him. What other people said about him, what friends did, mistakes that people made. When he found a woman and he was interacting with her and she was caught in adultery, she was caught in it. He didn't react with anger towards her. But when he came to the temple, the the house of God, And people were setting up barriers that kept others from worshiping and from connecting with their Heavenly Father. That is the time that He said, this is too far. And you can discover what someone hates when you know enough about what they love. And we remind ourselves here at Gulfside pretty regularly that in Luke 19.10, Jesus said, for the Son of Man, for He, for Jesus, came to seek and save those who were lost. That's why He came to earth. That's his statement. And so when we begin to allow there to be barriers that keep people from coming to a heavenly father who loves them, that is when Jesus reacts with anger. 
And so the, the money changers, we talked a little bit that, that they would charge you know, a percentage or, or a small fee along with the money that they would change out. It actually became so much a part of the temple system that they began to charge the fee even if you had the right amount. They were saying, well, it's not fair if some people bring the right amount because then we're not getting paid. So they began adding the fee to everyone. So you might have come to the temple with your half shekel coin ready to make the payment. They say, well, you still have to go ahead and make the payment because I'm not going to get cheated just because you brought the right amount. And so they were forcing people into this. The, the doves that, that were being sold, they, they were multiplying what needed to be paid for that, and it was preventing someone from going into to the place of worship that they wanted to go, that they needed to go, where they know that they would worship their Heavenly Father. And that's where Jesus said, this is the time where people need to get driven out of the house of God. Now, in our church and in churches in America, we don't sell doves in the lobby for many reasons, um, one of them being this passage. And you might say, well, how does this, how does this have anything to do with how we worship today? Well, it was easy for a rich person to enter into church, to enter into the temple. It was easy for the person who looked like them to enter into the temple. It was easy for the ones who had it together to enter into the temple. But the people who were of a different ethnicity or the people who did not have enough money to pay the fee, they, they couldn't just walk right in. And so I want to just, this is a private question to your own heart. When you're at Gulfside, or whatever church you go to, is it easier for you to greet a wealthy person or a person who came in looking like a mess? Is it easier for you to just kind of turn the shoulder and not take notice of the person who came in smelling like cigarette smoke and looking like major life issues? Is it easier for you to ignore that person? If a single mom comes in here, is she going to feel like she's judged because dad is not involved? Or is she going to feel loved when she walks in here? Is she going to have people coming around her knowing that she can belong in this household? What barriers are there that get set up in churches? I'm going to tell you, it, it's, very, it, it's prevalent that churches often become, well, that's the white church in town, and that's the black church in town, and that's the Asian church in town. And that happens because we have this natural tendency to only love people who look like us. And that cannot be true in the church of Christ. And so we may not have money changers, but I'm going to tell you, some of us might need to change the way that we behave and the way that we greet and, and get to know people at church. And it becomes a barrier because when we keep people in isolation, they very quickly know that this is not the house for you. And I, I want to encourage you to make sure you know where, where I see us being at. When, when, I, when we have people come to Golfside, one of the things that I continually hear is when I came into church, so many people welcomed me, and I love that. And that has to continue to be a heartbeat of ours, that we love the people who walk, walk through these doors no matter where they're at in life because God loves them and his love moves us towards them. That needs to continue to be our passion because I believe that God, his passion will burn against things that are obstacles to people coming towards him. Jesus looked at the house of God, and, and he didn't say it this way in the passage, but here's the terminology. He said, this is a sacred space. This is not a marketplace. This is a sacred space. It is supposed to be a house of prayer. And it needs to be protected with passion. And, and you want to know what will make people angry? When Jesus flipped those tables, he cost people money. 
Like, this was the business day. Like, 250,000 people trying to get into the temple. This is when I make my bank for the year. And here comes this Jesus who is not an authority in the temple, flipping over tables and flipping over benches and driving, driving us out when we were supposed to be making our money. He's going to upset some people. But Jesus is protecting a sacred space. And in the same way, there's often things that need to change in churches because there are obstacles to people coming to Christ. Those need to change, even if it might upset some people. Another sacred space that, that you, and I, we, you and I both need to protect, the space of the church. I believe that. And that's not to say that everything needs to be perfect and, and buttoned down and pressed and everything looking all together. One of the ways that we protect this space is allowing broken people to feel at peace here. People who don't have it together. People to know that they are loved right where they are, but challenged to go where God is calling them to go. That's one of the ways that we protect the sacred spaces. One of the other sacred spaces that you need to protect is your household. Your household should be a place of love and of truth and of worship and of connection. And there are times, there are many times where we need to reset the course for our house because though we set it once, things begin to drift off course because of busyness and the seasons that we've been living in. And I'll tell you, this was something that e even this week, I was having a conversation with my wife and I said, I feel like we need to reset some things because we're coming out of the season where we have soccer and volleyball almost every night of the week. And once we're done with soccer and volleyball, it's like, oh, we just, we need to pick up food. We need to buy food because we're so tired at the end of the day. We don't want to do anything. Kids just go on screens because I need some downtime. And it was like we were just living our life running alongside each other rather than with each other. And it reminded me so much of this conversation that happened around my dinner table early in the life of our church. We had this great family over for dinner and their, their, their parents do stuff with their kids all the time. I see pictures of them hiking and things like that. But we're playing a board game together and their kid totally just put the dad on roast in front of the pastor, which was a terrible thing to happen. But we're playing this board game and, the, and, and, they, and they say, our, our parents never play board games with us. And I'm like, I know they do tons of stuff with you. Like, I, I, that's not the concern, but it marked in me. I'm like, man, I know that they used to do this with their kids, but it's probably been a few months since they did it. And our kids experience life in these seasons where they forget the seasons that have already gone by. And it, and it made me evaluate, and that memory made me evaluate, like, right now, do our kids feel like we do stuff with them enough? Do, do we engage or do they feel like we just, we're waiting to get to our place of peace where we're just hanging out, where we're watching a show, where we're, we're scrolling, whatever. Like, how are my kids feeling? And so we re-evaluated re and we, our family, we did a puzzle the other night. And I want to tell you, and dads, hear me on this. I hate puzzles. I, I really don't care how you feel about what you do with your kids, what you do with your spouse, what you do with your loved ones. I don't care what the activity is. What I care about is, are you investing your time into the right space? Are you protecting that sacred space that God has entrusted you in? Because it doesn't really matter if it's your favorite thing to do, because at the end of the day, it matters that you've done something together and that you've protected that space that God says you have authority in, that you're supposed to make sure is honoring him. My, my next plan for our kids is we're, we're going to play Uno soon. Because, you know, when they have Uno, I'm going to drop a draw four on them and help them learn how to manage their anger. Because um, we all know if you played Uno, you know how that goes in families. Like, there will be tears. And, and your family nights, they, they may not always be perfect. Your family nights might end up in arguments at times. But your, your kids, your spouse, your loved one, your extended family that you invite into the home, they will still always remember the effort and the time that you poured into them. 
And at the end of the day, that's what matters because some family nights, it's going to be like, we're the Brady Bunch and we're the best. And some, it's like, you know, we're the Kardashians and this does not make sense for us. Like, I understand, like, there's going to be different times. And this is the other thing that I tell you to understand. Just like when Jesus was clearing the temple, when you make changes, when you restore the proper order to things, there's going to be people who are like, what do you mean I don't get to play Fortnite anymore? What do you mean we can't go out to this event? What do you mean we need to do less things on the weeknights? There's going to be people that get upset. And you need to be ready to just bear the weight of that and say it doesn't matter because this is a priority. And if you don't reevaluate the course that your life, that your family, that your health is going on, you're going to end up at a destination that you never meant to get to. You did not intend on having your kids feeling like they grew up in isolation, but if you don't actively engage, it will happen. Another sacred space that every single one of you in the room are called to to protect is your personal integrity. The things that are only known between you and God. This is a space that you're responsible for. No one else is accountable to God for the decisions that you make except for you. And when you begin to make changes to relationships that you know are destructive in your life and to your integrity, when you begin to make changes, there will be waves, there will be problems, and other people will take issue. They will say that you're being judgmental just because you're making changes in your life. Allow them to be upset about it. It doesn't matter. As passionately, (laughs) as patiently And as lovingly as I can say, it doesn't matter what they think if you know that this is what you need to do to protect your integrity before God. When you make changes, it will upset people. It might cost someone something. Be willing to pay the costs because anything that stands between you and God, anything that stands between you walking closely with your heavenly father, I would say that that thing is one of the most obvious places where we see the anger of God at at work, where he says, I will throw that down. I will knock that down. And the longer that we allow it to stay in our life, the more difficult it's going to be, the more waves that are going to happen as we begin to set that right. And so band, if you guys will come on up here, I'm going to begin to close this out. You know, I started off talking about that there's, there, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to set a table. And, but it, it, especially when it comes to the way that our flatware is, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't even really matter how it's on the table as long as it's, it's there because it has a job to do. But there is something just ingrained in us that any, like there's literally measurements that you can find online about exactly how far Everything is supposed to be from each other. And it's easy for us to say, well, you know, I want to make sure that other people look at my play setting and they understand how refined and how smart and how wonderful I am. But especially in the church, appearances, oh man, we make so much out of appearances in an attempt to not live in the reality that we're actually in. And so, as we wrap this up today, talking about barriers between us and God, and that Jesus, like, he flipped tables because they were barriers. Are there things that you have allowed in your life that is keeping you from that close walk with God that you know that you should have? And have you been just, you've been setting a perfect table? Like, we're going to go to church because we're, we want to appear religious, and so we want to appear like we have it together, so we're always going to have everything all in the line at church. 
And, and we're going to serve at church because we need people to see that we serve. And we're going to give at church and we're going to pray big over our envelope as we hold it high and make sure everyone sees it. And we put it into the box because people need to know that we're, get, we're giving. And, and we're going to look like we have it all together because my ego needs, my ego needs people to see me having it all together. And if that is part of your worship and how you act in the house of God, I'm going to tell you that that is actually going to become a barrier to how you worship Him. Because if I'm going to just go with the illustration of the plate, you know, if you have the most simple plate, plastic silverware, and you're like, this is what my life looks like. Right now my life looks like it's cheap and disposable. But that is where I am at. Like, like things, like they, they, they're not right. They're not good. They're not fancy. But I'm going to come into the house of God and I'm going to be exactly who I am. I want you to know that your Heavenly Father would rather you walk into church and be honest about the problems that you're having. Your church family can't hold you up if we don't know that you're hurting. If you, if you will not be real with someone and be real with God, healing is going to stay far from you. And in fact, for the people who just continue to put on the face of everything's perfect, eventually Jesus is going to get fed up with this obstacle that is keeping you from him, and he's going to take your whole load of perfection, and he's just going to turn it up on end. And it won't be your choice at that time, and it will be more of a heartache at that time, and it will still stir up the people's lives around you, but God loves you enough to tear down any barrier that's going to keep you from him. And you're going to make a decision about how it happens. Are you going to be involved in the process of God? My ego, my pride, my, my false sense of reality that I've been living in. Will you just wipe it away? Will you remove anything that keeps me from you? And allow yourself to be who you are, where you are. You're going to continue to let things, like other people's opinions of you, guide the way that you live your life. I want to end on this passage because it's the truth. And it extends so much further than even what's written here in Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. It says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your fears about today, your worries about tomorrow, the, the masks that we hold up, He's going to come through them eventually. So why not just start now? Why not just be honest now? Why not just give Him your whole heart now? There's nothing that God's going to let stay in between you and Him. Because, listen, Jesus didn't just clear the temple to purify it. I don't know if you paid attention with this verse when we read it the first time, but man, this is so good because as He goes and He upsets all these people clearing the temple, He costs people money, He costs people pride. Verse 14, if we can put that back up from Matthew 21, verse 14, it says, The blind and the lame came to Him at the temple, and He healed them. That's why he had to make space. Because the people, that the religious people didn't even want to let into the room, he had so much more for them. He had healing waiting for them. But space had to be made. So in our life, in our church, in our household,
Let's remove all the barriers so that we can see Christ's hand of healing at work. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your passion and for your love. We thank you that you would, you would even upset people so that you could heal people. So in areas of our life where something needs to be torn down that we've built up, Give us the faith to just put it into your hands. Give us the faith to be real and vulnerable and humble right where we are. We thank you for your love that, that moves towards us without unending and without failure. In Jesus' name.